pandemic or not, we can't do all of this alone. Salutations and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. And what's going on right now is that this is the second of our episodes uh, without me. Celebrating the superfluousness of men. <laughs> Celebrating my absence. Poor Adrian. I like. I don't even want to roast you too much. First of all, you are someone who shows up, and that is not something that I want to overrate here. And second, like you had very legit excuses, particularly this week, for missing the recording. Would you like to fill us in on what it was this week? Yeah, so I, I made it through COVID fine. He survived the plague. And then um, I uh, was stuck on a train for two hours. It's, a, it's a kind of a, a kind of a horrible story it, it does appear to have hit a person and and uh, we, were, we were stuck there for uh, i guess like 90 minutes and by the time uh i i could have called in from from a jangling frantic caltrain circled by police diesel powered yeah. train you know california train uh this is not you know this is not like the singapore metro or something like that no. you would have heard some rattling so that, that unfortunately was just, just not an option never never one single goddamn never dull, dull moment. moment ever um, Ever. <laughs> that would be so nice. I mean, I what can I say about Angela and about essential labor? I mean, yeah. oh my God, this book just like, this book ripped my sutures open and like reached into my chest cavity and just like rearranged some things. Like I told Angela in very teary terms in the interview itself that like, I just don't think I've felt this scene by a single work that addresses pandemic parenting. And you can hear in the episode, we get into the sort of like feats of miracle that Angela had to pull off to write a book during the pandemic with two children. And um, shout out, by the way, to Angela's husband for doing that. That was one of my favorite spouse stories yeah. I've ever heard of a writer producing a book. But there's something about this book that just felt like a miracle for even existing, you know, for even being able to witness how hard it was to be a pandemic parent. I was so grateful for that book to exist. Yeah. So pandemic parenting. I'm so bummed that I didn't get to talk to Angela because, I mean, I think that, as you say, like, she's been one of the most interesting writers kind of exploring parenthood. A real authority. Yes. Yeah. Right. Sort of right now. Right. Like a mother, mm -hmm. which I think was mm -hmm. published in 2017. Is that right? That sounds possible. I read that while, you know, while our surrogate was pregnant with my daughter and, and it really resonated immensely with me. And then and then this book, like you say, is an already extremely astute yeah. Like right after these things happen, it seems like an absolutely astute analysis of what just happened. Like I wish I like I can just like sort of point to things and like babble and like <laughs> Angela already has the has exactly the the right vocabulary and the right diagnosis. Yeah. Book. I think that's what I meant by the sort of miraculous quality of this book is like she was really able to articulate in in both a like time and logistics way and in a prose and analysis and skill way something that I just hadn't gotten to yet and I was just so so grateful to her for doing it. I could just yammer on and you will listen to me yammer on like, you'll hear me praise Angela a lot. It's uh, fangirly. And I have a huge brain crush on her, and I do not apologize. Never apologize. I would never apologize. Let us delay no further. Please enjoy this interview about this book that you should buy. It, Essential Labor is out May 10th. Uh, you can pre-order it right now. You should pre-order it right now. I want you to should. see this book be you a bestseller. Should. Please enjoy, and thank you for joining us once again. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Angela Garbez. I I feel like I should set a timer right now for how long it is in this conversation before I start crying. But okay. like <laughs> I have I mean this sincerely, I have not felt so seen as a pandemic parent mm. by anything but this book. Like this book reached inside me and like cleaned some shit up. Ugh, I love hearing that. It was a more sustained experience than reading any one particular article by Jess Gross or newsletter by Lydia Kiesling or whatever, you know, things that I loved and cherished, but like the experience of being able to drink in a full book of like this kind of witnessing was just like so meaningful. So I just want to start by thanking you for that. I don't know how you did this and I'm we're going to talk about that, I hope. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like I was like, how long will it take before I cry? Because that is, I mean, to hear it put that way is really powerful. And I'd be the first person to be like, have you seen the body of work that Jess Gross has put together? Like week after week. I could cry just about her name. Consistently, yeah. right? Like, yeah. So, but it's true. And I'm the kind of person who... I mean, I read voraciously, not, but mm-hmm. not nearly as much as my other friends who are mm-hmm. like, like someone like Lydia, who is constantly reading and is so smart. Ridiculous. And I'm, yeah, I'm so like, smart. I think I just need to binge watch Top Chef. Yes. But, um, but so the thing that I feel about that is like a book is very meaningful to me and it is a different experience of reading. So to hear that, to hear that from you is so meaningful because I hadn't really thought of it in that way. And the truth is like... <laughs> I, I honestly, in some ways, like we can break it down, but like, I don't know exactly how I did it. Yeah. And it was never, it was, Laura, it was never guaranteed that it was going to happen. How could it be? I like, mean, I you trying. have two kids. I have two kids. Everybody knows what the last two years were like. Like, I was like, this woman is is a miracle worker. <laughs> what mean, did she do? <laughs> the other thing is that it's, I mean, like we're still living this. You know, yes, the benefit, dude. I would say the the benefit, one of the things that was a big change is that we went from being, I mean, I don't need to like remind you of how truly bad it was like the first year, all of 2020. I mean, I was like, please let my creative desire die because I don't Mm -hmm. know how to keep going as the person I know Mm -hmm. myself to be. So, I mean, a huge shift happened though in that people got vaccinated. Of course. Like I took a trip in that hot vac summer moment. Same. Um, Like I went to New Orleans to celebrate someone's 40th birthday for one week. And I actually think that that was a week of life giving energy that made it possible for me to continue. But the other thing that I want to go back to, because what you said is, is so generous and it's so meaningful to me. But I mean, the idea that I like reached inside you like these, this is like fucking me. Yeah. Like this is my guts. I'm proud of myself more than anything else, just for having fuck yes. for having written the book. And also, uh, it just is. I mean, I love it. It's an imperfect book. Like you know, like I'm the first person to be like, yes, there are, there are a few things that I would change, or there's, it's uneven here, or blah 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 blah. But I was like, this is it to me is like a time capsule. Like this is the record. This is the book I needed to write mm-hmm. in this moment, and I got it done. And that's how it is. And for it to be like. I think that there's no way that you could actually reflect this or feel like you occupied someone's thoughts about being totally even, mm-hmm. and being completely rational and being um, having it all tied up. 
Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, but I think we'll see more books like this, or that's what I hope. I think we'll see more works yeah. of like sustained a dwelling in this deeply painful place. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I, so I'm trying to root around to find the language for the other part of this book that meant so much to me. And as if there were only one other part, it took me some time to kind of like sift through this, which I think says something about the, the profound impact of this work on me. I was like, why is this so moving to hear this writer recount what March 2020 was like, what September 2021 was like? And some of it was like our commonalities. We're both on the West Coast. We both have two kids. You know, there were the the school closures here were more extended than they were in other places. And they coincided with wildfires in really traumatic right, and restrictive right. ways. So like I saw all of yes. those contours and felt really seen by them. But there was also like something I was bringing in. I was like, OK, well, I know what a book production process is and how long it fucking takes and so she wrote this and then it went through a book production process and now it's in my hands and that must mean that now is not march 2020 and on some level my traumatized fucking little system like needed to hear that like i didn't know on Mm -hmm. like time has gotten so soupy in the pandemic particularly for those of us who have had these kind of shapeless caregiving days (laughs) yes yes but i was like oh my god it's not over i'm definitely not out here saying the pandemic is over but i was like we are not in that place where we had to explain to our kids that the playgrounds were closed you know that was a real mile marker that's not a question that's just (laughs) i was like it's it's incredible that it's not 2020 (laughs) i mean we're at this place we're not at a place where like oh children are resilient everything will be fine which is kind of no myself for a long time we're at a different place which is like children are resilient but no child should have to live like this for as completely and now i'm like i'm in a place where i'm like even my children who are like fairly cosseted and comfortable, I'm mm-hmm. still like, oh, oh, we have some mental health things that we're dealing with. For like, sure. We have some, it's this other level, like the vigilance has been transferred to some other thing. Yeah. Because we're yeah. still living with a, as you, I'm, I'm assuming I have an unvaccinated child still. Yes, I do. Like, and we're not talking about that. We seem to have semi given up or totally. something on this. Like, Moved on. Vaccine. So there's still so much uncertainty. It's just morphed into something else. And that's why I feel like the book was like, from a certain time. And, and I will say that part of my motivation in writing this book was obviously knowing a book production schedule, you also understand this book went into a completely accelerated timeline. I was going to say it must have been fast tracked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it was the, the secret history of the book is that I, I've been under contract for a second book for like two years. I sold one immediately after my first book came out. And then I like couldn't figure out how to write it for Number of reasons I don't think are too relevant to this conversation. Sure. <laughs> but basically what happened was I, I figured out, like, I had to push the deadline back like a year and because of the pandemic. And then when I wrote that article for New York Magazine that went viral, that sort of became the beginning of this book, I just suddenly was like, I'm back. Yes. Like, I got yes. Some juice. <laughs> like, I got, I got something. And f- instead of having these painful conversations with my agent and editor where I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what I can tell you. I was like, I have an idea mm-hmm. and I want to just try. Mm-hmm. And they were like, go for it. Yeah. And so when I figured that out, I also was like, I need to show you that I'm serious about getting work done. So I was like, let's set it. We set a deadline for the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. And so the, this book was written basically in seven months. And instead of like waiting the year for the book to come out, we just like it was fast tracked in every way, mm-hmm. in part because there's like so much urgency to it. Yes. You know, and I felt like we wanted to, I mean, you could break it down from like a naked capitalist view, which is like, you want to take advantage of this moment commercially and sell it because it's going to resonate with people. But I also was like, I need a book. I want a book like this. And I want this book to be out here at this time we're having this conversation. And another 
reason, this is how I was beginning to answer, was that there was a moment, you know, where all the articles were like, moms are not okay. We don't have a social safety net. We have moms, right? Yep. And affluent white women were like, we are in a childcare crisis and we are angry. And I was like, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Can we stay here? Mm-hmm. Can we stay here for a minute? This is productive. Yeah, this is a pre-pandemic problem that we are now all awake to. And then I just felt this moment where I was like, schools are going to reopen in the fall of 2021. And all of that rage that people feel, especially in this cultural push to go back to normal and to get back, go back to work, go back to the office. And I was like, we are going to lose this momentum. Mm -hmm. And people are going to think because they can rehire their babysitters and nannies and everything's going to be open again. Like a lot of women are going to think that we like solved this problem. Yeah. And And partly we're going to keep moving forward because it's really painful to live in the reality that like we were confronting. For sure. And it's just, again, like we're supposed to just like pick up and and go back to normal. And I was like, I don't want, I can't have us not talking about this. I can't have us moving on and pretending like we didn't all just see what's behind the curtain, which is there's like no support. Totally. Fucking ugly and inhumane. And that feels so important to me so far beyond the capitalist mandate, which is of course there, you know, like that's how books are produced. But I think another way to reframe that is like a lot of people really fucking need this book. And those people don't Mm. feel terribly seen by everything that has transpired in the last two years. And that's going to have some tragic compounded effects over the coming generation if we don't address that. Because I think so often about one of the lingering effects of the pandemic being just the vastness of the unacknowledged grief, you know, like there has been no public space made for this kind of grief, you know, and grief in a literal sense of people being lost to death, but also grief for just the life before, right? Grief of freedom, grief of of job loss, etc. And this book felt like a memorial project of making space for that grief as a mode of moving forward with more intention. Like, and that was what felt Mm. so much more important to me than like, I mean, my mouth to God's ears. I hope it makes every bestseller list and makes you a millionaire. Like, let us not gloss over that. And I also think it's serving a deep social, emotional and psychological need, you know? I mean, that, that to me is like the real work. Of course. Of course. So yes. But I mean, yeah, sure. I, I, I'll take money. Take it. (laughs) Let's let's get you the money. But I don't. Uh, I definitely am not in this. Uh, I'm not in this profession because I think that's even a possibility. Right? No. Um, but I love that. I mean, this really, I really love that idea. Like this is like a. It's like a grief. It's a. It's a monument. It's it's all of these things. It's it's witnessing. It's making space. It's remembering, and it's also because it's not just like I think it's important just to do that. Yes. Just to hold exactly space. for no other reason, just to be like this happened. Yes. Exactly. We're not alone. We didn't imagine it. Like it feels like beyond our, beyond my brain, my brain's capabilities of believing this, like what we have normalized in terms of statistics of death and unemployment. It hurts me how I feel numb Mm -hmm. to it. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? If, If that makes sense. And so, yes. So just to do that to me is a very interesting and worthwhile project. And then for me, because I'm always like, oh, I have to actually, um, I need everything I do to be useful in some way because otherwise I don't have work. Right? Yeah. Um, and I've come to peace with this. I feel like service is a great thing, right? Yeah. But I definitely like in the way that I, as a woman of color, like I know my story is valuable, but I'm like, oh, well, I'll never write a memoir because no one would just buy my story, right? Like like a lot of my writing is informed by, yes, I use personal yeah. narrative, but to me that's like an emotional access Completely. Point. And then I'm going to like hit you with some data so that we can start thinking about like, 
some way that we might think about improving or moving yeah. forward or progressing. That is yeah. exactly what I wanted to talk about next, because I thought this book was so structurally successful in terms of hybridizing analysis and memoir in exactly the way you just described. Oh, the thrill that having an academic say that to me. Well, Angela, I'm not a real academic, so don't get too excited. Oh, no, no, don't say that. Uh, that's my own inferiority complex talking. Nonetheless, that one stat you had about there were 2 million American women who left the workforce during the pandemic, and of that, over 800,000 were in September 2020 alone. Did I get that right? Yes, 865,000 in September 2020 alone. Oh, my God. I mean, and you and I can break that out. Like, let's break that out for anyone who doesn't have kids. That's when the kids went back to school and the balance became totally unsustainable, yes. right? It's like, do I leave a five-year-old at home from <laughs> eight to four or do I keep my job with health insurance? Like these impossible situations. Yes, that's when people realized, oh, I can't be a care worker, a professional worker, and a like school proctor, an online yes. school proctor at the same time. It just, that was the moment when it broke for yes. 865,000 plus people. I mean, the only reason I, I remember that juncture so well, because that was when the wildfires were burning and the skies were literally orange yeah. in the Bay Area, yes. like Star Wars orange. Yeah. And basically, Angela, the only reason I kept my job in that sort of stretch of the pandemic was because I leveraged my retired teacher mother, who was 77 at the time. <laughs> To come uh -huh. and like take over the Zoom homeschooling with my older kid, yeah. which is like a very privileged decision. Like I was very privileged to even have that very imperfect option. But I did a lot of thinking of like, what feminism is this <laughs> to take a 77 year old out right. of retirement <laughs> so that I can keep working? But I mean, you like know? if we if we were to take it out of the lens of like feminism. Yes. And just sort of look at it, which I mean, obviously, this is the Feminist Present yes. podcast, and I'm not really interested in divorcing a lot of things from feminism. But what that is, though, is actually communal living. Yes, that is exactly. acknowledging that nothing, pandemic or not, we can't do all of this alone. Right. You know, like this, it's a myth that we're supposed to be able to just handle all of this stuff in our little nuclear family. Totally. Like, that's not okay. Like intergenerational also, like... A 77-year-old woman is not going to, like, you can't force someone to do something that they don't no, want to do, she, right? Like, that's absolutely You know true. what I mean? Yes, like, there is an course. element of, you know what I mean? There's balance. And there's something also to be said. There's reciprocity there. Like, it's not like she doesn't get anything out of it. Oh, I cooked her, like, five dinners a week, bitch. Like, I cooked for her. I was like, I am miscast in this Hallmark movie, but I'm cooking my way through it. Um, sorry to interrupt. And also, like, the time. No, please. Like, let's just keep talking. It's like the time of being, like... I mean, I just got back from a week's vacation with my husband. It was Seattle Public School spring break. So he and I went on spring break and left our children with my parents. <laughs> and we, I like struggled with guilt for about four seconds. Uh -huh. And then I realized like, and I'm talking about it because I still, it's, Good. it's complicated. Yes. Like, it, even though rationally, I'm like, no, 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 I shouldn't feel bad about this. Um, I did a little bit. And I think part of that is what the pandemic has habitualized, which is like, I care for people. I care for people. I cannot think about them. I cannot think about them. Even if they're not with me, I'm thinking about them. But, you know, here I am on a beach in the, in like the Baja of Mexico yes. and I'm trying to think about this and the way I, what I always come back to is like, this is good for everyone. Yes. Like this is great yes. for me in this moment. Yes. This is wonderful for my children who like have such a strong and solid relationship with my parents. It's really beautiful. Yes. And it's great for my mom and dad who are obsessed with my daughters and want nothing more than to give them ice cream every night and let them watch the Paw Patrol movie over and over again. <laughs> like this is, um, 
it's, it really is good for everyone. Like generations Absolutely. interacting. Like I'm not just trying to justify your choices. No, like, I love that you because they this feel out. like bad choices, but they are like this is the way it's supposed to be. It's actually what supposed is to be more this way. natural. What is more human, which is sadly feels at odds with American society, <laughs> um, is to to need help and to come up with messy and perfect solutions and work it out together yeah. and talk through it all and wade through a lot of intergenerational muck and all of it. Yes, absolutely. And in particular, that point that you make about like things that are good for the parents' health are also good for the children's health is something, I think our kids are similar ages, mine are four and eight. How old are your kids? Yes, they're seven and four. Yes, so same. Yeah. Okay, I love this. Okay, so maybe you know this. So we have just in my family reached a new threshold in the last couple of months where we we put the Nintendo in a separate room, uh-huh. and the kids are now old enough to like know how to operate all the controls because I'm out here in the Bay Area raising little like tech bros. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so what this means is that like they can wake up at seven a.m. or whatever on Saturday morning, and they can run out to the family room and like take care of their own asses. For, yeah. You know half an hour or whatever and that is so meaningful in terms of like you know my relationship with my husband just being able to sleep in a little bit Mm -hmm. or you know the same thing happens in the sort of after school window and my husband and I get to sit down at five o'clock and like have a glass of wine and talk about our days and we're like are we doing something wrong are we neglecting our children like is there a (laughs) catastrophe happening that I am unaware of but then I reached exactly the conclusion that you reached I was like oh is it possible that if we are a little happier and more connected and sort of like system is calmer, that's probably also going to benefit the children. And why is that such a revelation? Right. Like, why does that feel so counter to the messaging of American parenting? You know yeah. what I mean? Yes. No, totally. I mean, we do the same thing. I mean, Saturday and Sunday mornings, the girls watch. Oh, I don't know. Because I'm asleep. Uh, I, think I don't know. It doesn't matter. They fend for themselves. Television by themselves. Yeah. And it can be like propaganda, Paw Patrol, and that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on Chase as a hero. The cop is not yes. a hero, but I mean, that's a later discussion. I hear <laughs> but you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think about it and I do think like what we, ugh, like I, I, I can't muster enthusiasm for any or interest in any conversation around like mom fluencing or helicopter parenting or mm. things like that. Like mm. parenting as lifestyle is not a thing that is, um, just doesn't do anything for me. I agree. But I think the language and that analysis could be useful in what I'm thinking through here, which is that. I mean, my parents, I mean, we were latchkey kids. Both of my parents worked full time. Mm -hmm. They were immigrants from the Philippines. They were like, I mean, a lot of it was like, just figure it out. Take care of yourself. Be bored. You know, life's hard, blah, blah, blah. But like, we were definitely like set free. We were semi-feral. You know, it was like, just come back Mm -hmm. by dinner. Right. And now Mm -hmm. like the idea of like, I'm like testing out the idea. Can I let my eight year old like go to the park? That's one block away, like by herself. Could she walk? Yeah. I mean, my seven years, could she walk to school next year by herself? Like, will I be hiding behind a tree? Right. Like, but there was a lot more. um, And the world is different, to be sure. But I think that before people were less hung up on like, I need to be there guiding my children in academic and social ways. Like kids can just sort of like. Like a lot of the parenting that my husband and I are like actively talking about becoming better at is just like staying out of it. Yeah. Like they have conflict. Like we look, we look the other way. I was just going to say, let them resolve conflicts. Yeah. And that's part of getting older. And that's part of the relief of having these children who are crossing this threshold too, where you're like, oh my God, you don't need me as much. And that's, you know, Mm -hmm. the pandemic made that a lot harder too, because we couldn't outsource that care or just not be with them for six hours out of the day. And have someone right. else address their needs. 
I've read Nicole Cliff call that mode benevolent neglect. And I think about that a lot. Yes. Like she writes it very praisefully about this and like feels like that's the way yeah. she was parented. And I think about that every time I, you know, watch another 15 minutes of TV while my kids eat chips or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about it. We got together with friends on Saturday night and we love it's you know, two families. We all have two kids. And we always just talk about it. It's like, let's get together so that we can be humans and collectively ignore our children. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And let them ignore us. Yeah, ignoring them collectively is not the same as ignoring them individually, right? It's still totally. a collective action and it's a beautiful thing. Oh, I love that. Because anyone can step up into that role. Yes, and any of those kids can like step up into a role of looking after a younger one. Exactly. Oh, I feel like that's going to be like my next text as soon as I like hang up this call. Like who wants to like ignore our kids together. Um, <laughs> so you turned in this book at the end of 2021. Mm -hmm. And I know what school closures were like throughout that process. So like, I kind of want to know the nuts and bolts of like, when and on what device did you write this book? Was this like writing on an iPhone in the park while your kids played? Was this like at times that they were asleep? Like, how did it work? Yeah. So I am unfortunately not someone who's figured out how to write on a phone um, or anything else. I need to like sit down in front of my computer and I can't, I'm not real great at ignoring them. I need time and space and solitude. Yeah. Which clearly we're in short supply during the Hard pandemic. to come by. Yeah. So um, I love this. I get to shout out my husband. Yay. Because so when I signed the contract in April, you know, and it was like turn in basically November of 2021, I was like, okay, I know, I know I'm going to do this, but it's like happening. And he, I'm like here at my desk and he works like over there sometimes. He's now in his office again, but he like came over with his laptop, sat down next to me and said, okay, pull up your Google calendar. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, pull it up right now. And so I did. And he said, here's the deal. Yes. I know what you need to write a book. He's like, and you're not going to get it done here at home. <laughs> and he's like, so what we're going to do, he's like, this is what I'm telling you. Every three weeks, you're going to go away. You're going to go away for at least three nights and you can go away for up to a week. And I'm telling you, I've just got it. Like, we, this is your time to do this. And we're going to do this for the next six months and like pull up your calendar. And I was like, we don't need to do this right now. Like you are being very dramatic. You're very kind, but like, no. And he was like, I'm telling you right now, like, this is what we're doing. And that's when I was like, Yes, daddy, whatever you say. <laughs> so that's what we did. And he's incredible because he basically gave me that thing that, Laura, the scary part is that like I was in a place where I couldn't even ask for that. Yeah. Like I was like hesitant to admit that that's what I needed. Or accept it when he first offered it even. Right. Like it was, yeah. you know, luckily like I have a partner who is, who sees me. Clearly. <laughs> even though I, I go out of my way to not be seen. So that's what we did. And so I went to like, friends cabins i went to hotels i rented airbnbs um i house sat i just did any number of things i stayed in places where i peed in a bucket like I mean, it was really and then i went and i went there and i was like okay i'm gonna drink coffee at 7 p.m i'm gonna eat cold spaghetti for breakfast i'm not going to have any other obligations and that was when i was like oh no like i'm a writer like i'm a creative person like i felt so free it didn't feel like a burden you know what I mean like I yeah. could write for like two hours and then I'd go for a swim and then I'd come back and and keep working like I didn't feel like I was taking away from something else to feel right. this thing it was just what I was doing I could be wholly absorbed in it and I got better at it the more I went away mm -hmm. and that's a little scary too because I would always come back and be like 
I'm so happy to see you, but you know, when I'm away for a week, all I want is to go away again. Like I don't want less of it. <laughs> but then, I was alarmed by how little I missed you when I was gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so that's a nuts and bolts. Like that's the, that's probably like the biggest piece of it. It was time. Wow. And it was time that in partnership I was able to find and prioritize the other thing I did was, well, I also reimagined my entire creative process. I would imagine. as a, I mean, I'm a double Virgo and I'm the kind of person who's like, let me take three hours to line edit this paragraph as I write it, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that's not a particularly quick way of working and it's what I've done for most of my life. But I got to this place in like June where I was like, no matter how beautiful the ideas are in my mind, they're nothing if I can't work with them. They're they're nothing if they're just in my head. Totally. And so I was like, I need content. Like, so I did the um, Jamie Attenberg's 1000 Words of Summer. Oh my God. Transformative. Love it. Like changed yes. my life. Yes. And the other thing I want to tell people, like you don't always have to do it when she's running it. I totally what I did was I created like a Google filter and put it into, made a folder so that when I was ready to do it, I had you know, two weeks saved up. I love that. And so this happened, this was like me getting up at 5.30 in the morning, which I hate. I hate, I'm not a morning person, but um, it was summer in Seattle. So there was like light would come up while that was happening. <laughs> and I realized too, it's like, I need to get words on the page and I have no control. I felt like over what happened each day, but I was like, if I can give myself 45 minutes to an hour every morning. If I do nothing else but write like a thousand words, like that will make me feel yeah. like I'm moving this project along. And that's really what I needed to be doing. And my mantra became embrace imperfection. <laughs> and I just like vomited words. And I was like, I don't, I know these are ideas that I want to have in the book, but they are not, I wasn't thinking about a chapter. I wasn't thinking chronologically. I was like, whatever crossed my mind, whatever is related. And a lot of that stuff actually made it into the book. Not all of it. Some of it was truly bad, but some of it was like helping me figure out where I was going. But it was just creating, you know, at the end. And then I actually kept going for a few more weeks. And then I had like tens of thousands of words mm. to play with and react to. And that that was the other huge piece of it. That's incredible. I love that tipping point where just like not doing it is worse than doing it badly, kind of. And, and yes, just, just like, okay, I'm going to shit with my hands until there's some sentences and then I yeah. will improve them. And that's writing, you know? And like, yeah. I think, I don't know, I'm speaking as a teacher here and I can, I can feel how younger writers look up at people like you who have published two acclaimed books and they think like, Angela, oh my God, I bet her first drafts are amazing. And it's just not like oh that. God. It's not like that for any no. of us, you know? Oh, no, no, no. no. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it's hard to account for that work and it's painful while I'm doing it. Like, I really yes, believe, humbling. I often feel like until I have a finished product, I mean, that's not even like a first draft. That's like a something close to a final draft. I literally feel like all I'm doing is sitting on my ass. I'm like, I'm just having thoughts, yeah. right? And yeah. typing. And it is, it's weird because now that it's done, again, I. it's almost like I go into this fugue state or I guess maybe it's some version of like the muse or whatever that is where I'm like, that's, that was so pleasurable, but it felt almost like terrible while I was in it, mm -hmm. but I was like in it and that was the work. And that's the work that I don't know how to like, I don't know how to replicate that. Like, yeah. I don't know how to tell you how to do that. You no. know, like, that's why I'm not an educator, I guess. Like, it's a very, it, to me, it's mysterious. I mean, writing this book, I was like, I already wrote one book. Did I learn nothing? Oh, because I, I don't know how to do this second one. And I am sadly, as I talk to more people, it's like, if I am lucky enough to write a third book, like. I don't think it will look the same. The best I can do is take a few things that I've learned because I think I'm going to have to 
reinvent the whole fucking process all totally over, which is terrifying but <laughs> i do the fallacy of thinking that i've learned something and that it's going to be easier next time like all the time i've done it with books i did it with yeah. pregnancy the the second time i was pregnant i was like oh this is going to be a breeze i know all the tra-. like as if it's a skill or something that you can even improve mm-hmm. yeah but i mean another thing that i find really moving that i hear you saying is that part of the way you got this done was you have a partner who was active in collaborating with you to make space for you to be an art monster, you know? And I just think that's really beautiful and worth celebrating. So I'm glad you're shouting him out. And I'm glad it's nice to hear about a husband who was like helpful to a book producing process, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it didn't benefit him in the short term. No. (laughs) It definitely did not. (laughs) No. And so I think like, that's one of the things that we understand in our relationship, which is foundational to it, which is like, and I mean, actually, this is something that is going to be renegotiated, I think, but like, it's, it's been... And this is before we had children, when his career like took up a lot more space in our life and my career did not in part, not because I wasn't successful because I didn't really, I hadn't really found the thing that was mine exactly. Mm -hmm. But we've always been like, I've got your back. And sometimes it's my turn and sometimes it's your turn. Right. And sometimes like I am in support of you. And sometimes, and this is an example where it's like you are... The primary purpose is for you to support me. Yeah. And my family. And now I wonder, like, we're at a place where it's going to be, I think there's a little, there's less of that. We have two kids. There's a little less to go around. So it's like, how do we, and we also, I should say, have support from outside, which is in the form of my parents. I was going to yeah. say, this feels so connected to your overarching point about just community caregiving. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, we are lucky to have free quote-unquote free care through my parents we have very very close friends whose those friendships have deepened in the pandemic Mm -hmm. we have a beautiful wonderful fantastic babysitter and i think like we're probably going to need to rely on that more Mm -hmm. because we it's less about us taking turns now because i think we both want to be able to do things simultaneously right right and so like how do we how do we ask for help how do we accept help how do we like come to terms with how we do that and like and pay people in a way that feels good and Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's sort of like the next phase, I think, of how we are supporting each other and our family and our work. Completely. And I think that's such an important point about equanimity and relationships is like, it's not always going to look like 50-50 every single day. It's probably going to look something more like 80-20 for the next six months, and then it flips mm-hmm. to the other 20-80 for the next six, you know, like you work it out in these shaggy pieces, not in this neat yeah. division, you know? Yeah. I want to talk about like, your expanded definition of mothering, which I think is so brilliant. So like, I would rather not butcher it. I would rather just hear you talk about like, how do you define mothering in a way that is more expansive and less reliant on gender too? Yeah. I mean, I want to say like, this is the sort of definition and idea that I've landed on in this book, but I don't Mm -hmm. like, it's not mine. Right. Like I think again, this is like, I, it comes from so many people. This too is a community project. Yeah. And I would specifically point to Danny McLean and her book, We Live for the We, which is Mm -hmm. a tremendous book that's about collective action. Yes. And also there's a collection of essays and anthology called Revolutionary Mothering, edited by Alexis Pauling Gums, China Martins, and Maya Williams. And both of those texts really point to, you know, motherhood is a noun. And it can be sort of a static and mother is a noun and it can be, um, I mean, when I think about cultural representations of it, it's, it's kind of static monolithing. It's overwhelmingly white, but, um, it is still something, it's an identity that's important to a lot of people. And it's important to me 
but I want to see myself in that. Right. And, and so they kind of, they push towards this idea of how about instead of a noun, we talk about the verb mothering, which is an action, which is so much more dynamic, right. And gets to all the many, 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 many acts of care and service that are required and also is not gender exclusive and also is not parent exclusive. Right. It can be as expansive as we want it to be. It can include teachers and educators and aunties and just like a kind neighbor, you know, like, and so, and I really like that. It doesn't cost me anything as a mother who has like a lot to say about motherhood, right, to expand that term. And I think that's a lesson that I really learned from my first book. You know, I felt like in my first book, which like a mother, I definitely acknowledged, you know, I was like, would this title feel out of date at some point? Because I'm interested in like how we are undoing gender. Like you don't have to be a woman to give birth, to be pregnant. And I talked about, you know, some trans pregnancy issues in the book. And I really, I felt like I was doing... I felt like I was doing my due diligence. I was doing a good job of representing and trying to understand. And I got a lot of feedback from people that was like, you know, your book is really meaningful to me, but I think your book is extremely gender exclusive. Like cis-normative. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wish that you had pushed yourself more. And I really wished you had changed up your words. And I was like, I'll take that criticism over and over again because sure. I think it's it's true. It's right. And we're all still learning. Yes. As we were talking about before, like, I feel like I am still learning. And so this book is both like me being like, I'm still learning. And this is like where I've landed with this. And I also am like, this is, co- I mean, I'd love to hear what you think because it's the question has come up and I feel like it's a little bit complicated. And I think we have to really reckon with and talk respectfully and openly about like, what do we think are the limitations of the term mother? Or like, what do we think are not? And what, so, I mean, at this point, I'd like to stop and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. That's such an interesting question, because when I think about the word mother, you know, we can redefine it in any number of ways. And I would probably be psyched about a lot of them, but it's still going to carry so much baggage of so many previous associations. You know, there's so many people yeah. who will never be able to degender that word, totally, no matter how hard we try. So I think the critique to move beyond cisnormativity, like I'm as interested in it as you are, and I don't know quite the right way to do it. And I'm sure it goes beyond just changing breastfeeding to chest feeding for right. sure, you know, like, but I also share... There's a generosity that permeates everything you're saying that I also really sensed from the book that very much seems to come from a place of like, hey, I'm still learning. We can have a discussion. We can take feedback. Like that doesn't have to be a worst case scenario. Yeah. But also like there was a way that this book reached for the least bitter perspective a lot of times in a way that I thought was really interesting. And like I said, generous and also like you. I don't really, I'm thinking of conversations I've had with friends who maybe don't have human children, but have like really devoted relationships with their pets. And they'll talk about being a dog mom and then they'll uh-huh. apologize to me. Like, I, like they're taking something away from me. And I'm like, <laughs> we can all be moms. Like, also, I don't actually I, feel, I definitely don't feel threatened by your relationship with your exactly. dog. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel, and I, I don't feel threatened by that. And I don't feel like you're taking anything away from the work that I'm doing by also yeah. seeing yourself as a dedicated caregiver, you know, yeah. like you, Angela, I think that benefits the collective for more people to see themselves as caregivers, you know? So I think we should expand it. And I don't know how I think is is mainly where I land with that question. It's such an interesting one. I mean, one of the things I think about too, is like, I don't, I mean, clearly this book is mainly about 
mothering children, you know, which is not, I mean, I, I actually did not think I was going to write another book about mm-hmm. motherhood and mothering. Like it just became obvious. This is what I needed to mm-hmm. do now. But I mean, I'm also really interested in that idea of expanding our notions of care and not privileging yes. one kind. Right. I mean, I think like raising children is something that we need to be thinking more about, but I think a lot about like, it feels like sometimes it's like the dream of parents is to be able to get away and feel like they're not caregivers. Right. But then I also think about, which I, I needed, right? I just went on vacation, like I said. But I genuinely think about, and this is a conversation I've tried to have with, like, my friends who are younger and single or unattached. And, like, what would it take to, like, to increase your investment? Like, for you to want to spend time with children. Oh, good question. Right? Like, is there a thing, is there a way that we can incentivize that as a society, right? Is there a way that we can incentivize, like, spending some time with old people as a thing that's just, like, understanding, like, that raising children is a social responsibility mm-hmm. that has benefits for all of us. Not, like, they're not so tangible, which I think is what's hard for right. a lot of people. Not just that you should do it, but that it would benefit you to do it. Yeah. Like, how do we... I just saw this... Oh, my God. It's one of those... I'm like, is it a meme? It's a tweet that I saw on Instagram? I don't know. Like, whatever yeah. you call those things. All the time. But it really... It kind of stopped me and just said... It was like, Psst, there's no radical left. It's just people who care about other people. Wow. And I was like, well, there's the there's the truth right there. That's a mic drop. Jesus. Yeah. And I felt like that's what I mean. Like, how do we, can we incentivize caring for other people? I think it's a very human urge. Like, that is part of that spirit of generosity and hope in the book is like, I've seen it in the pandemic. Like, mm-hmm. people, despite what, like, our culture tries to beat out of us, like, People want to take care of other people. It's a natural instinct. Yeah, of course. And I want people to lean into that. And I would love to figure out ways to play with ideas to, like, get people to care across all kinds of differences, mm. you know, just because, like, you know, is there a way? It's like, oh, if you spend time with kids as, like, a single person, maybe you get a tax break. Like, I don't know. Like, whatever that is. Like, there's – I would love to see, like, policies for incentivizing that kind of stuff. I feel like I've strayed a bit from the path, but this is all related to my thoughts on mothering. No, no, no. This is really important. Which is like, this is for everyone. This is for everyone. How do we incentivize people to care about caregiving, basically, as as a collective action that benefits everybody? And I think that part of that that your book engages deeply with is seeing the home space, seeing the private domestic space as a site of politics, right? As a politically valuable and relevant oh, yeah. space, right? And that feels so connected. So much of this book feels very connected to Black feminism. And that part in particular feels very connected to Bell Hook's conception of the home place, you know, like this, mm-hmm. this site of organizing, the kitchen table as a site of organizing, as a site of action that is important, yes. that is not in competition with the kids who are playing in the bedroom, but actually happening in collaboration with the kids who are playing in the bedroom and the auntie who checks on them every half an hour or whatever, you know, or the auntie whose house they're at that night so that other people can do the organizing at the kitchen table. Mm -hmm. And I just, I feel like if we can bring people into the house, you know, if I'm using the home place as the house, I feel like that's got to be part of this reorganization that you're working towards. Does that make sense? Yes, no, totally. That is 100%... 
accurate, I would say. And like, yes, spot on. And, you know, I was reading some like feminist theory by this woman, Veronica Gago, who's Argentinian. Mm -hmm. But she's talking about how also this is like the home is, and this is where I, you know, theory isn't really like my biggest thing, but she talks about how like this is happening internationally. Yes. Right. And that's also really important to me. She's like, it cannot be mapped to one place. But I think, you know, to go back to it, one thing that is important to emphasize is like, I guess this is still new for a lot of people. To me, like everything, sadly, everything is political. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and if you don't, and I don't see that sadly as in it's like, it can be a real drag, yeah. right? Like to sort of be like, oh, must I remind you again? You know what right. I mean? There are no like lifestyle decisions. Like you're in a place of privilege if if you can like forget for a moment that like where you s- decide to send your child to school is a political decision. Exactly. But um, I think people also really need to understand that and talk to people whose ancestors were enslaved, right? Like yeah. in this country and people whose ancestors were domestic workers, right? Or, or whose parents or who, who are now domestic workers, the home has never not been a place of work. Yeah. And that's the thing that people need to understand. Like it's not, it is a private refuge. Yeah. It is also a place where work happens. Both of those things are true. Yeah. Every day. And really it's like millions of dollars are like traded and negotiated within the home. And I think that's a real disruption to people's ideas of like what the home should be. This interweaves so crucially with another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is your parents Mm. and their role in this book. And as you were talking, I was thinking about literally the physical spaces in which we see your parents throughout the book, throughout the memoiristic elements of this book, which I thought just so beautifully highlighted the analysis of this book. And we see them at your home in Pennsylvania. And we understand that your mother is, she does like elder care, Mm -hmm. right? She's taking care of people in in hospice, was it? Yes. She's a hospice nurse. She was a hospice nurse. She's a hospice nurse. And and we see, I loved you. Was it your dad's line or you just sort of quoting your dad being like, we don't go camping. We like left the Philippines to stop sleeping on dirt floor. (laughs) that's my that's my analysis of why we don't go camping yes i laughed i lol'd at that i am also not someone who takes naturally to camping but that's a discussion for another day you do such a thoughtful careful job of of framing your parents in these sort of really illuminating mise-en-scenes you know of like the spaces they entered and what their home place was and growing up in an area where there wasn't a goldilocks or a jolly bee right and uh, you know like I'm working up to a question here, but there's something that feels so crucial about your parents' role in all of this and the care work that you saw them do. So I'd love to hear you talk about how you thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I the reason why I think about care, why I care about care, why it is top of mind is because of my parents. It's because of the work that they did. Um, and that so many Filipino Americans do, right? Yes. Like, it's not just them. Yeah. And I should say that really, you know, when I wrote this book on proposal, I didn't have anything in this that was like, oh, I'm definitely going to be talking about like the diaspora and Filipino American history. Oh, wow. That blows my mind because it feels so central. <laughs> I mean, these are the care workers that we export to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all, I mean... In so many ways, this book, I wrote it in seven months, but honestly, Laura, it's like a culmination. I've been trying to write this book like my whole life. I feel it. Of course. I will say that I think about care because of my parents. I also truly believe that part of why I'm a writer is because I'm just trying to explain myself to my parents in a way that we are so, there's so much love between us, but there is a massive cultural divide and they're like not readers. That's deep. And I just want to explain my world and how I feel about them and how grateful I am. It's all of the things that that I am going to cry. It's all of the things that I like, I can't say. Yeah. It's too, it's like we are, there's so much love between us, but somehow we remain like just 
just slightly illegible to each other. Um, and so, and that's been a source of like pain in a lot of ways in my life, but like, I still, I cannot stop trying. Yeah. And I know that they are not, they don't stop trying either. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I was like, la, 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 I'm writing a history of caregiving. <laughs> How could we America. possibly bring the Philippines into this? <laughs> and so I was really struggling because I mean, I had sort of pitched the book in the proposal as I love this because it really gets into the whole process. So I wrote this thing that was like, it's just essays because mm -hmm. I'm just about essays and thoughts. Mm -hmm. And my editor, who was the editor of my first book, Julie Will, who I love, she was like, I think we need to shape this like this needs a narrative arc like this needs some narrative. And she was like, I think the first half should be history of caregiving in America. How did we get to where we are? And then the second half is this part of you thinking like through how do we mother for a place of change? Like how, where are we going? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, sounds good. And then I was like, fuck, like how do I write the history of caregiving in America? It is so fucking complicated. Truly. And then I was like, how do I contend with colonization? We took this land from other people. How do I contend with slavery? We like build wealth, like on the backs of black people, right? How do I contend with like Latino workers who make up so much of like the domestic laborers? And um, I was like, I think I can do those things through research and I can do them with nuance because I'm as a woman of color, like I'm very interested in not leaving people behind and being as mm -hmm. inclusive as possible, but I was still deeply struggling. And then I saw this statistic that kind of crystallized everything for me. And it's the one- Oh, I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Yeah. It's about Filipinx nurses who, and my mom again is a nurse. And the reason she's a nurse is because of American colonialism that gave the Philippines a US education system that provided fluent English speakers who could be imported to fill nursing shortages. That's the summary of some of the history that's in the book. But the statistic is that Filipinx nurses make up 4% of the nursing workforce in the United States. They- are 34% of COVID nursing deaths. And so that, to me, that disproportionality was made it so clear that even though these are professional care workers who are doing, you know, like jobs that where they have like some worker protections, many of them are new unions, you know, like there's salaries and all that, but like their lives are worth less. Their lives are considered less important and we're comfortable with them dying at higher rates. And that's when I was like, oh shit, this is the story that I want to write. This is the story of caregiving in America that I want to write. It is my family's story. Then it is not the same as being African-American. It is not the same as being an indigenous person. It is not the same as being a Latina person, but it is the same fucking forces. It is capitalism. Yes. It is colonialism. Yes. It is racism. It is white supremacy. It is all of those things and I don't need to be an expert in somebody else's story. I just need to tell our story, which is very much underrepresented. And it is a way that will allow other people to see their family stories and value it and understand it. And it's a way that expands this conversation. And so it's so important. It's so important. I mean, that just felt so crucial to me that it's fascinating to learn that that wasn't an element of the book from the beginning. And I also just want to shout out the sociologist, Dr. Anthony C. Ocampo, who I yes. watched for the entire pandemic, begging news outlets to disaggregate all the Asian American data, being yes. like, Filipinos are unique here. You have to yes. break out the Filipino nurses. You know, yeah. like these are Asian Americans is like important. 52 countries. It's we're talking about exactly. 52 countries. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, like the immigrants from the Philippines to America have a very specific place. And I, I just I thought that highlighting them through the dimensions of care work and through the many dimensions of care work that yeah. permeate this book was just so artfully done and and urgent to understand you know like as we're in this time of i mean if it's too traumatic to talk about 
cut me off, but just as we're in this time of like unprecedented violence towards, and maybe even not unprecedented, yeah, no, horrible talk, violence. Talk about it. Yeah. Towards Asian Americans. It is so important that we disaggregate these complexities. Like it is a life or death thing, you know? And obviously yes. you don't need me to fucking lecture you about that, but I feel so strongly <laughs> about it, you know? And no, I, thought, I love hearing. Book- I mean, this, that's the thing is like, it's not just an Asian it affects like the bodies of Asian women more than anyone else. But like, this is not an Asian American woman problem. Like this is a people problem. Totally. Like, and you as a white woman, like, please speak on it. Speak on <laughs> it. I want, that's what I want more. That's what we need more of. Totally. And and I'm a white woman who's lucky enough to have some Filipinx like adopted family members and like, you know, moms across the street who took my older son for the overnight when I went to the hospital to deliver my younger son, where both of my children were delivered like exclusively mm-hmm. by Filipina mm-hmm. nurses and midwives. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, not to mention friends like Anthony and like other friends. Like these are not individuated yes. siloed issues. They simply are not. That is not the country yeah. we live in, you know? Um, and I was just so grateful for the dimension of care that this book highlighted, you know, and how how attent I sorry, this is a tangent, but I was thinking back to your relationship with your parents and your beautiful and painful description of the sort of feeling like you're separated from them sometimes. And one of the ways that I felt you negotiating that throughout the book was paying this this detailed, thoughtful attention to the sort of non-linguistic ways that they convey love. Yeah. You know, like that felt like such an act of your witnessing them to put that down and say, I see this. Yeah. I understand this. I receive mm-hmm. this, you know? Yeah. That felt really important. Thank you. That, I mean, that's, thank you. I'll just say that I have shared this book with my parents and I'm not, it, it's not being received in the same way I think that, you, that I yeah. intended and, and in the way that you are seeing it. And I think that that's also just mm-hmm. part of it. And it's, you know, luckily, hopefully we have more time to sort of sort through that. You know, when I think about this book, like my mother is such a huge part of it in so many ways. And the way, just knowing, like I, the way I mother is is in direct response to how I was mothered. As with us all. <laughs> yes. Well, but I felt like I kind of naive. Like, I don't think I really understood that until I was like a few years mm. in. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of this book is about like, I, a friend described it to me. She's like, it reads like to me, like a love letter to your family. Yes. And I was like, thank you. Like, that's how I, that is how I think of it. Like, I think of it as to share with my children, like, this is the story of who we are and where we come from and who your grandparents are. And then to also tell them like, this is what I'm trying to do with you. But also for me, it's very much, and I didn't realize I was doing this until the end. Like, I feel like a lot of this book is accepting the ways in which my mother, because she is an immigrant in a new country and is just a person, the ways that she was not able to mother me in the ways that I wanted to be mothered and sort of accepting that and also figuring out the ways that like, oh, so I didn't get those things and what am I going to do about it? I'm going to mother myself in some ways. Yeah, You know, that's like the work of self-care and therapy and all that kind of stuff. But it's important because I don't know how to show up for my kids if I don't take that time to do that for myself. As you were talking, I was thinking about your choice not to dye your hair anymore, you know, and what a specific rebellion that feels like, (laughs) you know, and significant rebellion that feels like amidst everything else that you were just naming. Yeah. You know, I was having this conversation with my mom about the book where she was feeling really, I think she kind of felt like it was an indictment a lot of, of a lot of her failures. And I have to honor how that's like how it landed for her. Mm. But um, she was like, you know, you put that thing in about how no one would ever think that you were my elder, you know, or no one would think that I looked younger than you, even uh-huh. though because you don't dye your hair. And I was like, OK, OK. I was like, but you're you're conveniently ignoring the first half of that sentence, which is how. You're 75 years old and I think you look incredible and that you have so much energy and that you're amazing. And she was like, 
well, I guess that's true. <laughs> like, reluctantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's complicated, you know? It all is. of this stuff is complicated and it's a little bit painful and it's all a little awkward. And again, that's to me like the imperfection of the book. It's like, I don't have answers. Right. Like, I have very clear ideas about what I think we should be doing or moving towards or the values that we should be like holding up and just reminding ourselves of. But like, this is not like, oh, I know what to do. <laughs> God, honestly. I mean, there were so many times where I felt like you were really generous in like illustrating your own fuck ups in a teachable moment way. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, none of us, we're all, there are many, and there are many. And that is so <laughs> honest, you know, like we are all in Medius race. And uh, I don't know, as you're talking about your mom's reaction, I'm thinking of the many nonfiction writers who have said things sort of to the effect of like, the way people feel after the first read is not usually the way people feel after the next read or the read after that, or sort of in the medium yeah. to long term. So I hope that that evolution sweetens for you. Yeah. But Thank you. I also like, even if she never gets, whatever, I'm not your therapist, but I feel very invested in this. Like, <laughs> even if she never gets there, your daughters know, yeah. you know, and your daughters will know their mom wrote two books and that their dad was a help and not a hindrance to that. Mm -hmm. And like, how much fucking value is there in that, yeah. dude? Like, nobody gets to take that away from you or from them, you know? Yeah. Thank you. And I do, you know, like, I want to shout her out because like, we are not at a place of like total acceptance and understanding. Um, but even in like the midst of her emotion and like sadness and frustration and confusion about this book, that first conversation we had, she ended it by saying, you know, this is your story to tell. So I'm not going to tell you like you can or cannot do something. Mm. And that's like a very beautiful place and a very generous place for a mother to land for a daughter who's very, very different from her. And like lives a life that's very different from what she ever imagined for her. That one really hit me, dude. Like, that's so generous. That's it so is. loving, you know, yeah. to like, to sort of bless it without fully understanding it. What is that's mothering like, but that? That's like, and that's the, that's like the gift of my life. That's the gift yeah. that she has given me. Like, she blesses my life without really understanding it. And so it's really, um, yeah. Okay, well, it took us an hour to cry, but we got there. <laughs> glad we got yeah there. i mean i've had like a like i've been like kind of like on the verge but that's really how could you not with this yeah. book being this book like how could you feel anything else this is the knife's edge of your heart uh, in 250 pages dude like yeah totally. <laughs> oh my god can i circle back to one Please. thing that i wanted to say i'm so glad that you mentioned um anthony ocampo because his work did not come into this book directly, but like when I read Latinos of Asia, oh my God, I was like, oh my God, like this book, like I shared it with so many people and I was like, this is a really important thing like that we need to be talking about. Like this idea of like cross colonized, like yes. solidarity and identity. And so the one thing that this book was a huge gift to me and why once I started writing about Filipino American experience, I just kept going is because... I did not realize, and I was so thrilled and so inspired, like, there's scholarship. Yes. There. There's, like, yeah. so much Phil Am scholarship. I was, like, sort of aware of, you know, I had read some things. Like, I knew about Catherine Sinisa Choi, mm -hmm. who's someone that I draw from a lot, whose book Empire, Empire of Care, Care yeah. which is all about Filipino nurses and colonialism. I just, I mean, for anyone who's Filipino who's listening is just that. And I just feel so grateful to 
Philam writers and scholars because it was such a wonderful feeling to be brought into this space of scholarship and to be like, oh, no, people have been doing this work and we are here. Yeah. Like that feeling of like we've never been in his formal historical records where we're on the edges, we're on the margins, like right. to come into this scholarship and be like, no, we are here. And the community is robust and the work is relevant and the work is so important. That's a thing that I think a lot of, you know, marginalized people and people of color don't always see. It was a turning point, I think, you know, like in my life and in my like understanding. Sure. But it was huge in the writing of this book. And it was huge for me personally and, and in terms of just a meaningful to see totally. what is there and what exists. There. I'm really excited. So I'm really glad that you mentioned it. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about those possibilities, too. And I kind of think we're going to start seeing like Philippine studies programs in colleges and universities mm. in the next 10 or 20 years because of scholars like Anthony, you know, and others, so yeah. many others. But I think the critical mass that you're describing is so important and impactful for all of the reasons you just named. Yeah. And it's it kind of exists in this world, like because academia is not the real world, right? <laughs> no. but like it exists in this world where like a lot of research and data is like it's there and it's important that it's there. But for like people who are everyday living their lives, like it's a little bit out of reach. And that's why like you don't always I think, again, like I was aware of it, but I didn't know the extent to which it was there and the extent to which it's actually quite accessible. Yes. And so, you know, for the whoever's out there who needs to hear that, I just want to like leave people with that and remind them of that. Oh, I'm so, no, I'm so glad you said that. And, and I agree with you that academia is inaccessible to many people. But I would also say that like scholarship and data are acts of witnessing, yes. right? And like, I think it's really important that those records of witnessing exist for people like you and others to draw upon. Like yes. that is the project. Oh my God. Okay, Angela, we cried. We've gotten to the bottom of <laughs> <This> colonialism is... <laughs> and feminism. Thank you for, I mean, to be read with such generosity and to be read with like a deep understanding and appreciation of things that are going on at structural levels and emotional levels. It's really, really an honor. Um, thank you so much for your time. Just like this conversation and just for considering the work. Thank you so much. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.